When you're able, grab a Bible. We're in Acts chapter 2. There are Bibles as you come in throughout the doorway. If you don't have a Bible and you want one, those uh, Bibles that are there available for you on the table outside the door are for you. Please take them. And uh, it's important that we have a copy of God's Word as we look at it together this morning. We're in Acts chapter 2. We're going through a series on the book of Acts called En Fuego, On Fire. It's a picture of what does the church look like when it is on fire with the resources that God has given it, given her. We saw two weeks ago that God gave the disciples two very important resources. He gave them first the resurrection. He called them back to view the, understand the resurrection. He called them to understand what the ascension was about. And then, last week we saw he gave us another resource, namely prayer. These are the resources for us to become the church, the church that reaches out to the community, that doesn't grow in bread. And today we look at one other gift that he gives to the church. The gift he said that he would give to the church at the right time. They waited for it, and this morning they have it. Acts chapter 2, very famous passage, the passage of the Pentecost. So let's stand together and we'll read from Acts chapter 2. I'll read from verse 1 down through verse 21. This is the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How then is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Galatia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretan and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I shall show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapors of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. 
Listen, this time of year, I don't know about you, but I, I just need to get recharged. <laughs> I, I, I set in my New Year's resolutions, which I haven't actually even done yet this year, but I'm already tired of the ones I haven't done. And, um, you know, we need a filling. We need, a, we, need, we need something to keep us going, especially as a young church. I mean, we've, this is the second week that we began to be completely portable and set up in a new place. And so we as a church, just in the, you know, the emotional health of us as a church, we really do need a sense of the Lord coming to show us his presence in a very, very powerful and particular way. And the same desire that we feel together as a new community is, is really a reflection of the fall. Because essentially, you know, the story of the Bible is the story of how God created everything good and that in the fall there was an emptying. There was a social emptying of all that made relationships rich when Adam sinned. They were naked and ashamed before each other. There was a psychological emptying. Adam really didn't know who he was, his identity. He struggled to find it because he listened to the voice of another counselor who deceived him. There was a physical emptying, right? The curse of the fall was that they would die. And so you look really good this morning. But one day, that too will be your um, experience. We will all die and our bodies will slowly begin to decay. Many of us experience that this week as we get sick and struggle over the stomach bug. There's also a spiritual emptying, wasn't it? There was an emptying of, of Adam's relationship with the Lord. What was once vital and vibrant and intimate now had be it was totally emptied out. And so the struggle for Adam and for man throughout the rest of the Bible is trying to find some way to fill that void in their hearts. You know, you've heard it said that there is a God-shaped hole in every heart. In many respects, that is very biblical. It's very true. So we need to have a new filling. We need to be filled again with the incredible love of Christ. And to help us understand that, we've got to see what this passage is about. This passage is the most, one of the most famous passages in the Bible. And especially in Tulsa, Oklahoma, people love Pentecost because it talks about tongues. And we love tongues in Tulsa because what does that mean? Well, it means that God helps us communicate differently and different churches have different ways of interpreting that passage. But what we're going to see in this passage this morning are three very simple things that you've got to get if you're going to understand what Pentecost means in light of all of the Bible. You have to see the new Pentecost. You have to see the new people of God. And you have to see the new power of his kingdom. The new Pentecost, the new people of God, and the new power of his people. So look with me at verse 1 of chapter 2 and let's see what the Lord has to say. It says, the very first verse, when the day of Pentecost arrived, listen, we, we tend to think that, that Pentecost, the Pentecost that you're reading here was the very first Pentecost that ever came. But it actually says when the day of Pentecost arrived, it doesn't say the day that we've come to know as Pentecost came. When the day of Pentecost arrived, what, what was Pentecost? So Pentecost, that's right, Pentagon means five. Pentecost just means 50 days. 50 days after what? 50 days after the Passover. So if you're a first century Jew and you're reading this for the first time, you're hearing Luke give this word to Theophilus, then your mind immediately goes back, right, to the context in the Old Testament. 
50 days after the Passover, the Lord instituted a festival. It was called the Festival of Weeks, which happened to coincide with the time the barley harvest came in for Israel. And so, in order to praise God for how good he'd been that year, they, they gather their wheat, and they harvest it, and they throw a huge Thanksgiving party. All of Israel does. And they offer up wheat offerings to the Lord. But a first century Jew would think, yes, he would think about the party of Thanksgiving, the, the, the festival of weeks. But when you're reading this, notice what it also says. It says, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues of fire appeared to them. You got wind and you got fire and you got part. A Jew hearing this would think back to the Bible that they had, which was the Old Testament. And they would think, when has God shown his presence in a very powerful way through fire? And they would think about, you know, Genesis 15, when God passed between the pieces, you know, like a smoking fire pot. Or they would think about, um, you know, Deuteronomy 4, where God says that he himself is a consuming fire. Or Exodus chapter 3, where Moses stands at a bush that's on fire but never seems to get consumed. All of these famous passages in the Old Testament where God appears as fire. His white, hot holiness that his people could not touch. Or where God shows himself to be like the wind, like a whirlwind, you know, um, Ezekiel is taken up, right, in a whirlwind to the Lord. Or you think of other passages where like in Job 38, finally where Job just, you know, brings the hammer down on Job and he says, Job, and he comes to him out of the whirlwind. He speaks out of the wind. All throughout the Old Testament, you got fire and you got wind and they are the manifest presence of God. But every Jew listening to Pentecost, are you with me? Every Jew listening to Pentecost, when they began to see, okay, party, Great, Pentecost, there's wind and there's fire. Every one of them would have thought about an event in the Old Testament. Immediately they would have gone there where all three of those things take place. It was the original Pentecost, which was 50 days after the exodus from Egypt. 50 days, something happened. And God called all of his people together. You remember where that was? At Mount Sinai. The original Pentecost, 50 days, about 50 days after the Exodus, God drew all of his people together at Mount Sinai where God gave Moses the law. And if you look back in Exodus chapter 19, you'll see it. In Exodus 19, God appears to Israel. And how does he appear? He appears to them out of the mountain. And he sets limits for the people. And he comes to them in wind and smoke and a cloud. And it consumes the mountain. And there's lightning and there's fire. And the Lord says, amidst the thunder and the lightning and a thick cloud, and all the people in the camp trembled, just like the house trembles in Acts chapter 2. And Mount Sinai in Exodus 19.18 says the mount was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And smoke went up. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And you remember the very first Pentecost at Mount Sinai. God calls only one man to the top of the mountain. It was Moses. And all the people he set limits for. He says, my holiness is too great for them. And so Moses goes up to the mountain. And the Jews hearing this story in Pentecost would have immediately thought of that same experience. 
where God came down in a very, very powerful way. Except they would have made the connection that the first Passover, one man goes out and he comes back down the mountain with the law to tell us what God's manifest presence looks like for the people of Israel. And this Pentecost, it's a reflection upon another man, right, who is the go-between his people, Jesus Christ, and who says, I'm going to come back down this mountain, not on Mount Sinai, but on Mount Zion. They were in Jerusalem in the upper room. And I'm going to bring to them another gift. And it's not the gift of the law. It's the gift of the Spirit. And so Jesus here is the new Moses, bringing to his people not a gift of the ten words, the ten commandments, the Decalogue, but he's given them the Holy Spirit. What the first Pentecost brought his people was the law for how to live that just condemned them and showed them what they could not do, but what they were called to be as God's new holy people. But in Acts chapter 2, you see God calling a new people together in the exact same way with a go-between, but Jesus is the greater Moses. And Jesus is the one who goes and represents his people. And Jesus is the one who comes not down Mount Sinai, but goes up to the hill of Jerusalem to die for his people. So that in this Pentecost, in the second great Pentecost, the one that you read in Acts chapter 2, God gives them not a law, but he gives them the thing he promised to his people, his very presence. Do you see that connection? So let's apply it here for a second. What do you have in the new Pentecost that you do not have in the first one? Remember, the whole of the Old Testament was built. You know, the Bible is one story. It's, it's, it's one story made of 66 books. It's, it's not... It's not 66 different stories contained and bound in leather. It's one story. And so what you see in the Old Testament is reflected to us through the life and work of Jesus Christ in the New. So in the Old Testament, they had the law. They had what condemned them, what showed them what they should be and they could never become. In the New Testament, you have Christ giving his very presence to his people in the promised Holy Spirit which he says in John 14, 16, and 14, 26, will be for you a holy comforter to remind you that he's with you when you go through the dark nights of the soul like Jason shared earlier. So you have in the new, the new Pentecost, you have utter access to God's own presence because believers, if you're here and you believe, because God has given you his Holy Spirit. You don't have to go to the temple every day or every year for the day of atonement because christ the great paschal lamb has died for you you have his own spirit that indwells you and that gives you total access to the king it gives you the keys to the kingdom through jesus christ it not only gives you access which is which is really what we want we want to be known we want to have identity and security we we you know we strive to make money we try to you know to to climb the ladders of our corporations and of our professions because we want to be known listen here you have access to the king who made the world and he knows your name he knows every story he knows everything about you he knows what you're thinking right now not only do you have access through the new pentecost through Jesus' death and resurrection, but you also have total acceptance. 
And this should both inspire and awe you because if you have total acceptance, think of all the, all the times when you're struggling for acceptance in the eyes of your children, trying to become the best mom or best dad you can be, in the eyes of your grandkids, in the eyes of your employer. You know, let's enlarge our imaginations for just a minute to imagine what it would be like if we had complete acceptance, not before our employer or our children or our grandchildren, but before the king of the universe who knit everything together by the word of his power. And he loves you. You know, that's the difference. If you're here and you're not a believer, that's the difference between Christianity and, and other religions. That Christianity says that it is not what you do that gets you back into relationship with God, but it's what God has done for you. And when you recognize that the same gospel that you believed and that you came to understand by faith, when you first were repentant for your sin, that same gospel is what nourishes you to grow in the gospel recognizing that you have total acceptance because you tend to forget that, and I do too. And you have total access to God. And so non-believers, the difference between Christianity and, and all other religions is that all other religions tell you to follow the law, follow the five pillars, pursue nirvana, just be a good person. But in Christianity, it says to you, listen, You can strive with all that you have to be a good person, but the problem goes too deep. And the only hope that you have for real acceptance and for real access into the place that you most deeply want to go is by seeing that on the cross of Jesus Christ, he lived the life that you could not live, and he died the sacrificial life in your place for you. That's what Jesus is beginning to show us through the new Pentecost, and Acts chapter 2. That takes us down through verse 4. But look at verse 5. In verse 5, we begin to see that not only is there a new Pentecost, but there's a new people. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. You know, when, um, when people experience for the first time, they think about the, the you know, We've got a lot of things that we know about, a lot of TV shows that we use as illusions in our life. But these guys had the Old Testament. They used the Old Testament as the primary um, illusion, example, illustration for their life. That was the book they always heard, read at the temple. And so when they hear this, they experience it. They see all these people from all the nations hear this, you know, great, you know, know, uh, uh, all this stuff going on. They're drawn because they're all in the city for the party, the Thanksgiving party, the Feast of Weeks, for Pentecost. And they hear what's happening, and they're drawn to see Peter and the other 11 disciples and the 120 that are in the room, kind of like about what's in here. And what they're thinking is that they immediately begin to think about the Old Testament and say, you know what? This is just like what happened in Genesis. You remember in Genesis, there's another group of people that were all pulled together, and they came together to make a great name for themselves. And they were one people with one language. Remember, they tried to build a tower up to God, the Tower of Babel. And they did the best they could, and God looked down at them, and he cursed them because they, instead of relying on God, were relying on their own feats of strength in order to protect themselves. And God scattered them across the known world, and he gave them each a different language. So in in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, you've got, God's people together, 
being dispersed in their languages, confused. And so ever since, cultures, even in Owasso, as homogenous as we may seem to be, there's so many different cultures here. I mean, Sooners and Cowboys, my gosh, how different can you get, <laughs> right? Aggies, I mean, how, much, how gracious do you have to become to listen to an Aggie? You know, so you have all these different cultures. But what's interesting about Pentecost is that in Pentecost, God calls us to be the new community. He draws us in, not to confuse our tongues, but he draws one from every nation, no nation of the world, in. And everybody hears the gospel in their own mother tongue. It is the reversal of Babel. Not only is it the second Mount Sinai, it's also the second Babel. It's the reversal of what was cursed in Genesis 11, now has been brought together. And what's the point? This isn't about Bible trivia. This isn't about how much you know about the Old Testament. The point is this. That in the gospel, you now have a new people of God that you are a part of. You have become a new family. And I have become part of this new family together with you because we're in Christ. And what's so interesting about this is that most of our um, struggle in Owasso, I would say, is, and, and even in my own life, is the struggle to know what does it mean to really be a family because we really don't know what that means very well. We like the idea of family. In fact, we moved to Owasso because we can have a better life for our family. But we have these dual struggles in our heart where we want a good family, but we also want comfort. And those two don't always go together. What do I mean? Well, C.S. Lewis, in his Four Loves, says this. He says, to love is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable. To love means to be vulnerable. When I ask people what their hopes and aspirations are for you know, living in town, most of the themes that um, in this informal survey I did this week revolve around either comfort or family. And it's interesting that both of those things cannot be simultaneously pursued. That's why we struggle so much with, we have this kind of deep emotional spiritual angst. Because at the same time, we don't want conflict in our family, but we want a family. And the two cannot go together. If you're going to lead your family well, you must therefore recognize that you've got to be able to confront and to have conflict at the right times and over the right things. And as Christians, if you want family, if you really want a good family, you have to see that it's only in the gospel that you're able to have the good family because it's only because Jesus accepts you, utterly accepts you, that you can step out on a limb and you can confront people in your family. And you can have hard conversations with people in your family, even though they may not understand. Because you have the confidence and the acceptance and the access to Jesus Christ, your Lord. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Comfort and family do not go together. But those are the two things that we want so badly. And you must realize that they are only able to come together 
They are able to come together, but only in Jesus Christ. Because only in Christ do you have access, do you have acceptance, and also do you have a new family, a new people of God. And therefore you're able to love your family well by being vulnerable. And that extends not just from your family to the church, but it also extends from the church to your family. Which is why when we say we want you to come to worship, it's not because we, we, we you know, it's, because, it's not because I'm, you know, I, I want to have a certain number of people here by a certain time. It's because we want you ever slow, slightly, week by week, to have your imagination broadened and widened just a little bit more to imagine what it's like for the kingdom to break into your life. Because the place you're going to learn to be vulnerable is the church. And that's why we do community groups. I mean, there's a place, remember that place in Mark 10 where, where Jesus says, he who hasn't left his houses or brother or sister or father or mother or children, in this life will he have a hundredfold. Have you ever thought about that verse? Like Jesus doesn't say in heaven you're going to have a hundredfold. He says now. In the new covenant community, you will have a hundredfold. What do you mean? When I, was, when I was younger, my parents went through a very, very hard year in their marriage. And my brothers were just old enough to both go away to college. So I'm the youngest of three boys. So I was home by myself with my parents. And they were going through a really difficult phase. And into my life walked my youth minister. His name was Jerry. And I, I read Mark 10, and I think about this passage, and I think about the new family that God has given me. And I think about Jerry, a brother who stepped into my life to love me. I think about the men in my life who have stepped up to the plate for me, who have helped me understand what it means to be a good father. I think about my own father who has been a good picture of that for me as well. I mean, think about it in your own life. Think about all the sisters, all the mothers, all the brothers that you have in your life that have stepped up to help you understand what the New Covenant community look like. I mean, just look around. Like, look around this room. These are your brothers and sisters, friends. These are your fathers and mothers. The New Covenant community becomes a picture for us of how we ought to lead our families because we learn to be vulnerable here. And therefore, we learn to say hard things to each other in love. It's not that we're always on your case. It's that we love you. And we're going to give you high fives. And we're going to be straight up with you when we need to be. That's what love is. Or else, the alternative you do not want, is be, you become unbreakable, irredeemable. You become hard. You have, in Acts chapter 2, a new Pentecost where God gives to us his very presence. You also have a new family where we come to understand ourselves as his family. Every tongue and tribe and nation heard the gospel in their own tongue. The tongues in Acts chapter 2 very clearly are foreign languages that people understood. That's what he means by tongues here. There's a lot of confusion about what that means. And scholars debate whether or not that's the same tongue that's used in 1 Corinthians 12 or 1 Corinthians 14. But here it's very clear a foreign language that they all clearly understand. It makes them God's new community. 
lastly, in just the few minutes we have left, you have not just a new Pentecost or a new family, a new people, you also have a new power. What is that power? The new power, Peter says, comes from Joel. In Joel chapter 2, Joel was a prophecy to Judah to say the time will come when the Lord shall come in power and he shall give you a foretaste of what the kingdom is. Not the entire kingdom. He will give you a foretaste of what that looks like. And in the Holy Spirit, you have a foretaste. It's like the chips and salsa of your salvation. But more, it's a horrible illustration, but you know what I mean. He's giving you a foretaste of the meal. And he's saying, this is a picture of the kingdom. God is going to pred his Holy Spirit, not just on one man like he did Moses, but on all people. Notice what Peter says in verse 17. He says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, quoting from Joel. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Listen, you have a new power in the new covenant that's given to you at this church service. At this, was it the first church service that was with Abraham? It was a church service in the new covenant community where we had the fullness of the Spirit come in a very powerful and dwelling sense. And you have this new power so that when you read in Luke chapter 7 about how the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than the greatest Old Testament prophet, who is John the Baptist. Like, you know, you can't quantify this, but just imagine, like, somebody, somebody is the least in the kingdom of heaven. I don't know who that is. probably me. But somebody is. But that person has a greater prophetic ministry than the greatest Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. That's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 7. So just by, you know, Jason and Leah sharing their story up here and the story of how the gospel changed them, they've experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit. They've experienced conversion. They know Jesus' love for them. That's something John the Baptist could never have talked about. But you've got it. Not only are you shrouded in the presence of Jesus because he indwells you, not only do you have a new covenant community where you can grow vulnerable as a people, but you also have a new power. That is, you have a message that is greater than all the Old Testament prophets. Do you share it? Are you somebody who demonstrates that power because Jesus loves his church so much he has more confidence in you than you have confidence in yourself? And he wants to use you to extend his kingdom to Owasso. He could come down and just put on a revival and bring us all. He could come down and smoke and fire and he could do it, but he doesn't. You know how he does it? He does it through you. You have a prophetic ministry. And so some of you who really don't feel like you amount to a whole lot and struggle with your identity, that's a hard struggle But the gospel reminds you that you are the king's daughter and the king's son. And you have a message to share to the world, and he's going to do it through you. And the other thing that it gives you, non-Christians, if you're here, especially hear this, it gives you the ability to believe. Notice what he says in verse 21. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When you hear the gospel for the first time laid out that Jesus lived the life you couldn't live and died the death you should have died, 
the Holy Spirit opens up a new category in your affections for you to believe in Jesus. And when you see Jesus, as beautiful as he is, you run to it. It gives you not just access. It doesn't just give you acceptance. It doesn't just give you an appetizer. It doesn't just show you a new family. It gives you the ability to believe in the gospel. So brothers, if you are here and you do not know Christ, sisters, he is opening your heart through the sound of my voice to believe, do you? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And as we as a church recognize the resources that God has given us in the first two chapters of Acts, he's given us the resurrection, he's given us the detonator, the ascension, he's given us prayer together, he's given us his very presence himself, his Holy Spirit, to then allow us to go out in strength to share the good news with Owasso. That's his call to us as we experience the new Pentecost together in our hearts and continue to be his hands and feet in this town. Let's pray together. Father, you bring together in your word lots of themes. Themes of our total acceptance of our access to you, of you coming to us in power like you did in Pentecost. Lord, we pray that you'll help us to be a new people, to operate by a new power, to have the confidence that comes only in Christ Jesus, our Lord, and that you might even this morning lead some of us to repentance for the first time. Thank you for your work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.